What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Making the Turn, the premier green industry podcast that highlights professionals across many areas, including golf course management, sports turf, sales, business, education, landscaping, and more. Making the Turn is hosted by me, BJ Parker. I've spent nearly 25 years in the green industry, mostly as a golf course superintendent, and now I want to bring the knowledge and insight from myself and the many people I've met and continue to meet along the way. Making the Turn will provide valuable content for those looking to learn from others, gain useful tips and tricks, and be better in their daily lives. You can find Making the Turn on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe. It helps keep the podcast growing and getting better. Thanks for listening, and welcome to another episode of the Making the Turn podcast. What is going on, everybody? Welcome into the Making the Turn podcast. I am your host, BJ Parker, and I appreciate you joining me. And this episode is an episode that um, I recorded. It's a session at the Tennessee Turf Grass Conference and Show uh, in one of our educational seminars held um, on one of the, uh, the very first days of the conference with uh, Dr. Jim Brosnan. And I was able to capture some content for the podcast and wanted to reproduce that and send that out. It's something that I'm going to be doing over the uh, course of the next few episodes. Uh, and try to intermingle that with some of the uh, conversations and regular interviews. But this is a something new that I've been doing, something that, uh, new that I tried to do this year. Um, I started a little bit of that back in the uh, summer, uh, uh, going to the Tennessee uh, University of Tennessee Field Day, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be involved with the Tennessee Turf Grass Association uh, conference and show this year. I captured some content from some seminars and from the trade show and did some really cool things. So this is part of that series, and this episode will feature Dr. Jim Brosnan, and he'll be talking about some things that he's got going on up at the university and what he's working on. And the title of this um, seminar was called Things That Are Dead May Never Die. And I know you're really going to enjoy this. It's a really cool thing. It's a lot of cool information, a lot of research that he's worked on. And you're going to hear some things from him. And that's it. So without further ado, welcome into the podcast and welcome into Dr. Jim Brosnan. Talk to you soon. Next speaker. Uh, he knows needs no real introduction, but Dr. Jim Brosnan, who is super heavily involved in uh, the TTA, in particular the education, but he is, uh, really runs the show. I could not uh, be any more indebted to Jim and, and thank him any more wholeheartedly for uh, the success that this conference show has become. He has been the key cog in that for sure. So without further ado, one of our own, uh, Mr. Jim Brosnan. All righty. Well, thank you, Chris. Can everybody hear me in the back? Okay. Well, I appreciate the introduction. Uh, I appreciate everybody coming to TTA. Again, as, as Chris kind of alluded to, there's been tremendous growth of this event over the past several years. And, and a lot of that is due to, to member engagement and member involvement. You know, I'd like to thank our committee, uh, not only on the conference education side, uh, but all of the committees that are involved, whether it's the trade show committee, uh, the awards committee, there's, there's all of the committee work that goes on behind the scenes to make 
this event grow and become better. And, and that's all from people stepping up and becoming involved. So if you have an interest in continuing to see TTA grow and this conference get better and some new things that we could do to change the conference, to improve it, please come forward and share your thoughts because that's what helps everything uh, advance. Let's see. All right. I was going to try to go wireless, but we'll... All right, that, that better? Okay. So the title of my presentation this morning uh, is What is Dead May Never Die. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, you may recognize that line from the show. Uh, someone actually came up to me this morning and, and, and started a Game of Thrones conversation about the title of my presentation, which kind of took me aback. But I think it's appropriate in the context of a weed control discussion as a title. Um, I've had many superintendents, sports field managers, lawn care professionals come up to me probably for the past five years and just indicate that they feel that weed control is getting harder. And we don't really know why, right? It's not just POA, it's a number of different weeds, whether it's POA or crabgrass or goosegrass or sedges, it just seems like the challenge of trying to control weeds and turf grass is maybe a little bit more difficult now than it was five years ago. And, th and there's reasons for that that we'll talk about. Given the time of year, it's appropriate to start with POA uh, as our first weed of discussion here. And I've shared this with several groups. You know, we were lucky enough to get uh, a grant from GCSAA to do a survey of POA on Tennessee golf courses. Uh, and this was really important because, you know, you think about discussions about POA and resistance management. You think about discussions with POA and resistance management, and it's all case by case. It's, well, you know, I've had a problem at this location, or this hole we have a problem, or this field we have a problem. We didn't have any widespread benchmark numbers of, well, how extensive is resistance in our state in annual bluegrass? And aside from resistance, is, is POA in East Tennessee different from POA in Middle Tennessee or West Tennessee in terms of when it germinates or how long it takes to tiller or how much seed is produced? And those are the types of questions that we tried to answer through this survey. So to do this, we visited 90 golf courses uh, from January 1st to February 14th, 2018. That's a lot of golf courses to hit in, in six weeks, but I'm proud of my team that we were able to get that done. And at the time, that encompassed more than 30% of the golf courses in the state of Tennessee, uh, according to the last US Census. The way we did this was we divided the state into the three logical regions. We took all the golf courses in that region that had either Bermuda grass or zoysia grass as their base fairway and or rough turf, and we put them into a bucket. And then we would randomly select golf courses from that bucket. So we had 30 golf courses per region randomly selected. And then when my team would arrive to that location, we would randomly select a hole because we've learned over time that you go on visits about a weed control issue, inevitably the superintendent's gonna take you to the worst hole, the worst problem, and that's not truly random. That would be kind of biased towards finding, uh, finding an issue. So we would randomly collect uh, plants, uh, excuse me, randomly select a hole and then we would collect any plants that were present on that hole at a density greater than 10 plants per square meter. 
would bring all these back to Knoxville, grow them out for seed, and then start the screening process to better understand how much resistance do we have in annual bluegrass in our state. In the numbers, even for me, who's somebody who has researched annual bluegrass resistance for a long time, were shocking. Uh, I spare you the details of how we went through the screening process. When we sum it all up at the end, 64% of the annual bluegrass that we collected in this survey had some level of glyphosate resistance. 58% of annual bluegrass collected in this survey had some level of barricade resistance. 21% of the annual bluegrass collected in this survey had some level of revolver resistance. And I have a note here that that's 21% and we didn't sample greens. We only sampled fairways and roughs. And I think if we had sampled greens, particularly in middle and west Tennessee, uh, that number would probably be even higher. More than 90% of the POA we collected had some level of Princep resistance. And then the last two bullets here to me are the most important. 25% of the POA collected in this survey had multiple resistance, so it survived two modes of action, right? So the example listed is Princep or Revolver. And then 4% of the annual bluegrass collected in this project was resistant to everything that we sprayed, right? That, that is an alarming uh, set of data about the current state of annual bluegrass resistance in golf course turf across Tennessee. So what does it mean, right? Because that's the, the key question. So to me, what it means, number one, is the days of a one-shot POA program are, are long gone, that you're going to make one application of a product, whether it's one single application of a fall pre, or I'm going to come in in the spring and I'm going to spray Roundup on dormant Bermuda grass and clean up all my POA post. The days of that sort of thinking when it comes to POA management are, are well behind us. And to try to tackle this, many in the room are familiar, my team, we take on statewide POA testing every year where we try to look at what are all the programs one could put in place to control annual bluegrass, whether it's combinations of different products or different timings, and then let's look at that geographically across the state. So let's make sure that if we're going to put something forward as a recommendation, it gives us 90% POA control in Knoxville, 90% POA control in Nashville, 90% POA control in Memphis. So we try to get a statewide look at this. And we'll summarize all this. I usually put out a blog post in late July or early August, kind of advance in advance of the upcoming POA season that takes the lessons that we learned from those statewide POA trials and puts them forward as we get uh, ready to go for the forthcoming POA year. In this year, what we learned, number one, what we're advocating is one of the things is, a, is we call it a one-two punch program. So a one-two punch POA program is I'm gonna make one application in the fall. That could be a traditional pre in late August or early September. That could be maybe an early post application that goes out around Halloween. It doesn't really matter. I'm gonna do something in the fall and then anything that comes forward in the spring, I'm gonna do something again to clean that up. Hence the one-two punch uh, moniker there. And what you can see on the screen, so this is a look at one-two punch programs applied in the fall of 2018 and the spring of 2019. The green bars are Knoxville, the blue bars are Burns, and the uh, purple bars are Jackson. Uh, those were our three sites for our statewide trials last year. And on the y-axis is annual bluegrass, uh, annual bluegrass control rated in mid-April of 2019. So that was, we get to this spring, 
What does the sum look at how these programs performed on annual bluegrass? What we saw in Knoxville, the first set of bars on the left, so that spectacle in the fall, uh, followed by a revolver uh, application in spring, uh, that did great. We we're pushing 100% control at all three locations. If we look at another one-two punch program, uh, 25 ounces of barricade pre, uh, that was followed up with a monument application in March at the 0.53 ounce rate. Uh, again, two of our three locations pushing up 100% control. Uh, the third in Jackson, about 75%, but at the end of the day, not, uh, not anything to be upset about when we compare it to a, a traditional one-shot program on the far right. So if we look at that, that's barricade at 37 ounces pre in September, which nobody in this room would ever spray. That's the yearly maximum rate for barricade in a 365-day period. Knoxville, that application did really well. In Burns and in Jackson, it didn't do very well, uh, in large part due to barricade resistance issues at those sites. Now, the next thing uh, that we're advocating when it comes to annual bluegrass control is we're calling it a zone defense, right? And a zone defense in football is when uh, players of different position groups come together to achieve a goal. Well, in the context of an annual bluegrass discussion, this is when we take herbicides of different mode of action groups and we put them together to achieve a goal. It, it did not work so good, but it improved as the season went on, which is what's important. If you're unfamiliar uh, with uh, group numbers and herbicides, every herbicide, and this is true with fungicides and insecticides, there's a number associated with the product, and that number is an indicator of how that product works. Uh, glyphosate, for example, in the herbicide world is a group number nine. Uh, Barricade is a group number three, right? That number is an indicator of how that product works in the plant to do its job, and we can put herbicides of different mode of action groups together in this zone defense concept uh, in order to give us optimal POA control. And there's a lot of advantages to this. So, you know, the first thing is that you can apply a pre and a post in the same application. The example on the screen here is barricade plus monument. Uh, you think about that, now we have two modes of action out. That's gonna break selection pressure for resistance. So if we have a, a situation where we're trying to control barricade resistant POA, well that monument's gonna be active on that, on that barricade resistant population, and if there's plants that are still barricade susceptible, they'll be picked up by the barricade in the combination as well. One of the real key things here is that it allows for a later start date, right, which increases the likelihood that you're gonna stay clean through spring. If you're one who has historically relied on a fall pre for POA control, and you, know, you put that out, say, in uh, late August, early September, to ask that treatment to get you to the masters is a lot for one application of a single product given our fluctuating weather patterns. If we can push that start date into mid to late October, now we're in a position where uh, the chances of staying POA free are higher. And then the last point here is that's key when we think about timing for that first germination flush. And I'm going to show you some data here in a little, uh, a few slides uh, about why that's important uh, in terms of learning when that first flush will be and having the ability to start later making some more sense. So here's three uh, zone defense programs from last year's testing. Again, same concept here. This is POA control in April. 
The first zone defense on the left, so that's Katana at two and a half ounces mixed with Curb at 1.8 pints. These treatments would have been applied October 22nd or 23rd of 2018 uh, based on location, so within a day or two, whether you were in Knoxville, Burns, or Jackson. We rate this in April. We're pushing 100% control across the board at all locations. One in the middle here, uh, Monument plus Barricade. Uh, that's 0.53 ounces of Monument, 24 ounces of Barricade. Again, doing really well at all three locations. And then the one on the right uh, is Freehand at 200 pounds per acre. And we're gonna talk about Freehand in detail here in a few slides. Freehand has two uh, herbicidal ingredients in it of different mode of action groups. We've worked a lot with Freehand for the past probably five years now and it did very well last year in testing. It's another idea of a zone defense. And again, all of these are applied October, late October, October 22 or 23 to 24 of last year. And that timing has proven to be successful for our, in our program probably since we've been doing this type of work. And one of the reasons why is we've never had a model to predict when annual bluegrass emergence begins, right? We have a calendar date. We think it starts around Labor Day, but then we have Septembers like this year where the temperatures are pushing 90 in the middle of September and nobody's thinking about annual bluegrass. So one of my graduate students, Dallas Taylor, her project is to build an annual bluegrass emergence model uh, for Tennessee in turf. And this is an awesome project and uh, it is, a testament to her patience and, and ability to, to take tedious work here. What she's done is every single week of 2019, starting from the first week of January through the last week of December, she goes out to her plots and she counts annual bluegrass plants. So she goes out, she scouts for annual bluegrass plants, she finds one, she counts it, and then she removes it with a tweezers. And she's been doing this every single week over the course of 2019. And that sort of effort has led to something that's really great. So this is an emergence model. This is very preliminary based on 2019. Y-axis is our total percent emergence for the year. Uh, the X-axis is cooling degree days since the summer solstice, which is June 21st, uh, with a 21C scale. I don't really want to talk in detail about the model. What I want to do is highlight one region of the model, right, in orange here. So that region in orange is the window in October where we see the best results in all of our field trials. That's that 22 to 24 range uh, of putting applications out mid to late October. You look at that, the reason that those programs work is 50% of the emergence has already happened by the time that that treatment goes down. So now, if we come in in that orange window, we, it's not going to take much to control those seedling plants, and then 50% of our emergence flush for the year is over. And that's our thinking now about why that October window becomes so important. Now, I mentioned freehand. Uh, we've seen success with freehand, and I know folks in this room that are using freehand uh, around greens complexes and T-tops. It's a granular product, so the delivery system there uh, makes some sense. Uh, around bent grass greens, particularly with Bermuda grass surrounds, we have pretty limited options other than glyphosate. This is something where if you were to use this around a bent grass green, there'd be some inherent tolerance there. So there's been success with freehand at this October timing in trials and in 
uh, field applications at golf course sites. Uh, Greg Breeden, my research technician, he had an idea last year, let's figure out why this is working. So freehand is a mixture of pendimethalin and dimethetamid, the active ingredient in tower. So it's essentially pendulum plus tower together. And we ran a very small trial where we put those active ingredients out alone to see what was doing the work on annual bluegrass. And what we saw, at least in this one trial last year, was that it was the tower. So this is a plot, this is 419 Bermuda grass in Knoxville. This is 32 ounces of tower applied October 18th, followed by December 3rd. That photo is April 1st of 2019. That's not perfect annual bluegrass control, but given the level of pressure at this site, that's really good. And this is something that we are really exploring aggressively in 2019 and 2020. Uh, at multiple locations across the state to get a better feel for is this a response that's going to be repeatable and then what does the tolerance profile look like as we put this on different Bermuda grasses. And a motivation in that uh, is greens. You know, we're, we're testing this on the ultra dwarfs right now knowing that ultra dwarf greens require really special attention. We have limited options. We could work to a 24C label if we continue to see continued activity and tolerance, but those are unanswered questions at the moment. On the topic of greens, um, the number one thing you can do to manage POA on an ultra dwarf green is that if you still have ALS activity, if you can still control plant POA with revolver or katana or any of those ALS inhibitors, you wanna preserve that because the, the life after that becomes really tricky and really difficult. Uh, we just don't have a lot of tools. Uh, curb is the one that most people rotate into. In our testing with curb last year, what we saw was that there's really no need to get aggressive with rate. Uh, applications at two and, a half, two and a half pints perform the same as five pint sequentials, right? We don't need to get crazy with curb rate if you, if you are uh, calibrated with your timing. Low rate sequentials, so 1.75 pints perform the same as 2.5 pints once. And I know if you have real concerns about uh, safety, I know plenty of superintendents that are using 10 fluid ounces in three applications on a monthly interval, uh, October, November, and December. Exonerate can work at the higher end of the rate range, but there's price issues there, there's some potential tolerance issues there, it might not be right for every, every site that's out there. And as I mentioned, we're looking at alternatives now. One thing I'll say about greens, I, I've heard this said before by many uh, weed scientists across the country, you know, if you think about physical removal, it's 100% control and 0% uh, chance of turf injury. And we may push ourselves into this world if you've evolved revolver resistance and maybe down the road there's curb resistance too, this could be all that we're left with. One other thing I'll say is that uh, there's a large-scale POA project going on. I shared golf data with you this morning. Uh, this USDA uh, annual bluegrass project that there's 14 universities participating in, Tennessee being one of them, aims to get the same type of information you saw, um, but across a wider context. So golf, sports turf, lawn care, uh, et cetera. And we're working aggressively on that to try to have answers. Uh, did a lot of POA collections for GCSAA sampling. POA collections for this project as well. If we have been to your facility and we have collected POA and you want to know about your POA, what does it respond to? What is it resistant to? What is it susceptible to? 
please let us know. We have all of that data now. All of our screenings for Tennessee are finished, and we can give you the whole profile of what your POA looks like. So I'm going to segue out of POA and move into goosegrass now. Um, it's another weed that, again, uh, superintendents and, and really everyone is having uh, more trouble controlling. And to do this, I want to tell a story. So it's a public golf course in East Tennessee. Uh, those who know their public golf courses in East Tennessee can probably guess the location based on that photo, but we'll leave it anonymous for now. Um, Historical reliance on Barricade as their annual grass control. Uh, did some testing with them through the Tennessee Weed Diagnostic Center that their goosegrass had evolved resistance to Barricade. So this superintendent reaches out to the university and says, I, I, need, to, I need to get on a better approach in 2019. And I know Barricade's not going to be an option, so let's, let's work through some things. So we sit down and he says, well, okay, I know the barricade's not gonna work on, on goosegrass, but it still works on crabgrass and it fits my budget. So what I'm thinking is I'll put out barricade first and I'll do it with my uh, Roundup application. And then instead of coming back and making another barricade application, what I'll do is I'll use Ronstar on a granular carrier. Good thinking, right? Ronstar is a different mode of action group than barricade conceptually if his barricade is not controlling his goosegrass, moving into a different mode of action uh, that's really active on goosegrass should perform well. He couldn't afford the full rate with his budget, so he went with the two pound active rate and he applied his application on May 2nd. And the May 2nd was based on what he had historically done and how he had timed application two from application one. He just used the same number of weeks that he had done in previous years to time when that uh, would go down. He's left with a lot of goosegrass. Calls the university, says, hey, doc, what happened? Well, given the work that we do, the first thought was, well, maybe there's Ronstar-resistant goosegrass there. There's a couple of cases that have been published in the literature, not many. Um, certainly a lot of smoke around that Ronstar-resistant goosegrass fire. And you know, sat down and talked to him. There wasn't really any Ronstar use history at the site, so that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And, we just kind of moved off of that as an answer for why this product failure happened. What we did was we looked a little bit more about timing. So Rutgers University, uh, Dr. Matt Elmore there, he has published a goosegrass emergence model. So this is something where we can take weather conditions and then predict how much goosegrass we will have at a given point in the year. So I sat down with the superintendent, we took that model, we applied it to Knoxville data for 2019. So on the y-axis here, this is our goosegrass emergence for the year. The x-axis is the week of the year. And what I have tried to do is break this out into months. So April, May, and June. If you remember, he made his application to Ronstar based on his calendar schedule like he always had on May 2nd. The first week of May, and we had 49% goosegrass emergence according to the model then. And that's probably why that application failed. And I share this with you today because I'm, I'm becoming more and more of a, a, a person who thinks that these historical benchmarks that we use about weed control, I don't know that they're going to hold anymore, right? And we have a number of examples to suggest that that is just not going to be 
uh, the world we live in moving forward. And I'll, I'll share some, some more data with you. So this is spring rainfall accumulation for Knoxville. The red is 2019, the blue is 2018, the uh, gold is 2017. The y-axis is inches of rainfall, and that's January, February, and March of those three years. And we can see we had uh, more rainfall in 2019 than we did in 2018, and 2018 was more than 2017. That's only a three-year swath there, but if you looked at 2019, we had 50% of our yearly average rainfall in a 12-week period to start the year. What happens in that 12-week period? Well, a lot of us put spring prees out, right? We, we layer onto that. This is now the second summer in a row where we have had extended heat, extended summer stress, right? And I've published a few blogs about this. It seems like this is going to become an annual thing. You know, this was 2018's blog about this. This was 2019's blog, Endless Summer. You look into the data, and it tells a pretty convincing story, right? So this is our average daily air temperature on the Y. On the X is Ju uh, July, August, and September of 2019. The purple bars are Knoxville. The blue bars are Nashville. The, the greenish bars are Chattanooga. Uh, and then the orange bar is Memphis. What do you see there? You don't see a whole lot of change, right? If you run a statistical comparison, our average daily air temperature in September, doesn't matter what city you're in, is no different than it was in July, right? August was no different from September. July and August were not different from each other, right? September 19th, uh, air temperature conditions the same as July 19th, right? We've extended that period of heat now for another 30 days, right? Traditionally, we think about we're gonna get into September, things are gonna let off, it's gonna be less stressful, we're gonna get into a fall place now. And that didn't happen. There was plenty of chatter on social media this year about 60 days of August. Uh, and that certainly, uh, it certainly rang true based on the data set for 2019. And you know, it's funny to think about, and I think it all kept everybody in good spirits as we joke that, that August had 60 days. But there's real consequences to this, right? From a weed control perspective, we're challenging our prees more than ever before, right? We're now needing them to last longer. That extra 30-day period of heat in a weed control scenario, that's 30 more days that favor goosegrass. That's 30 more days that favor yellow nutsedge. That's 30 more days that favor crabgrass, right? So now we need these products to go longer, but they're in an environment where they're gonna break down faster. We're having more spring rainfall, and then we have extended heat, which is going to lead to more microbial activity in the soil, which accelerates breakdown, right? And now, because we have these consequences, it's leading to folks maybe thinking about doing some things to control weeds that I don't know are all that advisable. Here's one example. So several superintendents called me this summer to ask about plateau. Uh, as a post-emergence herbicide for Bermuda grass. And that was a bit of a head-scratcher for me when we think about plateau use on golf courses. We certainly, uh, that's not a long conversation because there's not much of that. You know, if you look at a plateau label here, um, what I've done is I've blocked out on the, on the plateau label uh, the use areas of this product. And I'm going to read this aloud. 
examples of non-cropland areas include but are not limited to railroads, utility, pipeline, highway rights-of-way, railroad crossings, utility plant sites, petroleum tank farms, pumping installations, non-agricultural fence rows, storage areas, non-irrigation ditch banks, prairie sites, airports, industrial turf, golf courses, residential and non-residential turf, or other similar areas. I don't know what my count is there, but that's roughly about 19th place for golf course use. I don't know that I would want to use a product on a golf course where that is the use, that is the place where golf course turf uh, aligns. Now, we tested this, right? Because you can look at that label and have an opinion and that's great, but we wanted to understand what is this going to do to turf, right? So here, this is 419 Bermuda grass. This is six days after treatment with Plateau in 2019. Rates of zero, two, four, six, and eight fluid ounces. It's pretty rough. It's not really hard to find the zeros in that photo, right? Now I'll say the turf did recover, right? And there was a little bit of weed control, particularly at the four ounce rate here. But at the end of the day, if I'm a golf course superintendent, I don't know that I could sleep with that being what my turf looked like. Um, I, I think that that's a scary proposition to go down this road. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So we look at these rates, you know, zero up to eight fluid ounces and lots of injury here, even at the, at the two and the four ounce end of this rate range. If you look at a plateau label, these are the rates to control weeds, right? There's a suite of weeds there, grass weeds and sedges, four to six ounces, and a longer suite of weeds at eight to 12 ounces, right? So we need higher ends of this product in terms of a rate pattern to control weeds. I don't know where this rationale is coming from, and I think it's important that we look at the facts related to Plateau before we make any decisions in 2020 about using this on a golf course. Moving away uh, from the plateau conversation here, but continuing on this theme of, of goosegrass, um, we've done a lot of work with goosegrass post-emergent control for the past few seasons. Uh, I've shared this with a few of you in the room. You know, one of the, the drivers that we thought was an area for future research was you think about where you see goosegrass, it's really in sites where turf can't thrive, right? Compacted soils, really dry, it's the end of the summer, our question was, are there physiological adaptations that that plant is making that allow it to survive in that environment, but also might make it a little bit less susceptible to some of the post-emergence products we use? So we tried to test this. Uh, what we did was we grew goosegrass in soils of different moisture content. We would test it with a moisture probe. and We grew plants uh, in soils that were less than 12% volumetric, soils that were 12 to 20% volumetric, and then soils that were greater than 20% volumetric. And what we saw was a staggering difference. So this is data from that experiment. On the y-axis is goosegrass control 36 days after treatment. On the left is our suite of herbicides applied to plants less than 12% volumetric soil moisture. On the right, over here, this is greater than 20% volumetric soil moisture. And you can see in this experiment, we had the uh, speed zone at the four-pint rate, a claim extra, which would be a cool season only product at 28 fluid ounces, tribute total at 3.2 ounces, Pilex at one fluid ounce, which would be a, a cool season rate, and then revolver at 26.2 fluid ounces. It does, and these are all, these are maximum label rates. Everything was applied with surfactant per label directions. It doesn't matter 
what we sprayed in that dry soil condition, tribute total, 3.2 ounces, that's max label rate of a product that is, is a high dollar price point herbicide. We don't control plants more than 25%, right? We change our soil moisture now. Those plants are now acclimated to an environment of 20% soil moisture or greater, and we have a dramatic increase in herbicidal activity, right? Here's a picture of that with tribute total. So that again, this is 36 days after treatment. On the left, this is the 12% volumetric moisture content uh, environment. And then on the right, this is greater than 20% volumetric moisture. So what does this mean for you? It means that if you're gonna go out and try to spray goosegrass, check your moisture at application. You know, if you have a soil moisture probe on your cart, go out and, and make a reading. And if it comes in on the low end of the range, maybe, maybe live to fight another day. Um, if you don't have a meter, I'd encourage you to just use your head. If you kicked up dust on the way to your truck in the morning and it ha you can't remember the last time it's rained, that's probably not the day you want to go spray a herbicide that's $100 or $120 an acre to try to control goosegrass. We have work ongoing with this. Uh, drought stress physiologist in Jackson, she took this data and tried to move it forward and understand why we saw this response. Uh, for the sake of time, I can't get into all the details of the work. The, the sum total of what we learned from that is that when we take these herbicides and we put them out in an environment that favors transpiration, which is the movement of water through the plant, that's where we see the greatest activity. So we have to have soil in the mo in, uh, moisture in the soil to be available for transpiration to happen, and then in, in, in air conditions that warrant transpiration. So that's uh, high temperatures and low humidity, right? You think about that from a practical standpoint, that means adequate soil moisture, treating in the summer, in the afternoon is gonna be the best combination uh, of environment to try to get the maximum activity uh, out of these products on goosegrass. So going back to my story, breakthrough on a Ronstar application May 2nd, what does this individual do? So looking at our options for post-control, uh, I shared this at field day, uh, for those of you that came to Knoxville last summer, uh, our most promising treatment last year was a mixture of speed zone and Pilex together. Uh, one application for post-emergence goosegrass control. So here, this the top set of bars is four weeks, lower set's eight weeks. Uh, the orange is speed zone at four pints. The white is Pilex at a half an ounce. The green is speed zone and Pilex mixed together. Uh, what we see here is that that speed zone Pilex treatment mixed together uh, gave us greater goosegrass control than speed zone by, speed zone by itself uh, at four weeks and at eight weeks. And then by eight weeks, a lot of that bleaching on that Pilex had subsided and the speed zone Pilex combo uh, withheld greater goosegrass control there uh, with a single application uh, and that's June 26th of last summer. There's some advantages to this concept, right? Speed zone and Pilex are both labeled for warm season and cool season turf, right? So if you're managing mixtures of warm season and cool season turf, you have the ability to, uh, to overlap on one grass or the other based on uh, the, includes, the herbicides included in that mix. The other thing is that because speed zone is predominantly a broadleaf herbicide, now you have something that's gonna touch a lot of broadleaf weeds in that mixture as well as pick up goosegrass due to Speed zones activity on goosegrass layered with Pilex's activity on goosegrass. 
What we wanted to do, though, is better understand, you know, if, if people are going to use this, particularly in a golf course setting or a sports field setting where tolerance is really important, you know, when we, when we gauge these things in weed control trials, we're at a site that is selected because it has a lot of weeds in it, right? Which means that the turf grass practices there in terms of the turf grass quality and, and the optimal maintenance of that turf grass, it doesn't give us the best picture on tolerance. So what we wanted to do was understand what does the tolerance profile uh, of Bermuda grasses look like to this speed zone Pilex mixture uh, compared to Pilex alone or speed zone alone. And we wanted to do it on new Bermuda grasses. So we ran this experiment on Tiffway as our standard comparison. We used Tiftuff, Northbridge, and Tahoma 31 uh, as our cultivars in the test. And rather than show you a bunch of bar graphs, I'm going to show you some photos. So these are two weeks after an application on August 12th of last year. This is Northbridge, this is Tahoma 31, this is Tiffway, and this is Tiftuff. Uh, what you can see here, this is speed zone at four pints. Northbridge and Tahoma, fairly tolerant of that application. I'd rank Tiffway intermediate. Tiff Tough in our trials was very sensitive to speed zone at four pints, uh, and the injury really lasted for the duration of the experiment. This is Pilex at a half an ounce two weeks after. Uh, so this is Northbridge here. Tahoma, fairly tolerant. What we saw with Tahoma was that the bleaching from Pilex happened early and then recovered really quickly. So when we got to this two-week rating, that bleaching was gone. Uh, Tiffway, kind of intermediate, and then Tiff Tough, again, probably the least tolerant of the group. And then this is that speed zone plus Pilex combination together. Uh, Northbridge on the top, on the top here, Tahoma on the bottom, Tiffway, and then Tiff Tough again, um, really showing a, a lack of tolerance, mainly due to that speed zone component. So summarizing that, um, we saw great efficacy last year, multi-tiller goosegrass control with a single application of speed zone plus Pilex at the rates shown uh, in the slides. We saw reduced bleaching uh, when we compare that to Pilex by itself uh, with the mixture of speed zone and Pilex together. When we looked at tolerance on some of our newer Bermuda grasses, Tahoma 31 and Northbridge would be in the top grouping, Tiffway would be intermediate, Tiftuff would be in the bottom. And again, we think that that Tiftuff ranking on the, on the lower end uh, of the tolerance range is really due to the speed zone tolerance. Uh, and when you think about it, speed zone has, particularly the red label speed zone, which has the goosegrass labeling uh, uh, on its product container, that has a pretty high 2,4-D load in it. And applying 2,4-D at high rates in August is probably one of the reasons we saw some of the phyto that we did on that grass. So one of the things we need to do now is look at uh, more combinations here with this concept, uh, really with lower speed zone rates, right? Because one could make an argument that the Pilex is what's really carrying the weight on goosegrass here, and if we can reduce that speed zone rate, we may be able to get a better tolerance profile across a wider array of grasses. Last couple things I just kind of want to plug before I get off the stage here. Um, this is my website, TennesseeTurfGrassWeeds.org. You've all seen this before. But we've had conversations this morning about things like DLI and cooling degree days. And you, know, you may find that this is something that's hard to track, right? Well, one of the things we added in 2019 is this climate data button. 
you can go on to here. Uh, you can pick your city, whether it's Chattanooga, Knoxville, Crossville, Memphis, Jackson, and then you can track that information. So you can look at growing degree days, base 50, cooling degree days, base 70, uh, cumulated precipitation, average estimated DLI. For all of those parameters, it will give you a seven-day forecast of what your, your next seven days, growing degree days or cooling degree days will look like. It will give you graphical presentation of that like you saw here uh, in this presentation where you have this year relative to the previous two years. And then you can also go in and you can customize this by date, right? So the default is for you to get yearly totals. But you can go in on a Sunday morning drinking a cup of coffee and say, hey, I wonder what our last 30 days looks like from a rainfall, rainfall perspective. Or I wonder how many growing degree days have we had in the month of June relative to the month of June last year, right? You can go into this and pull out those comparisons that are relevant to your operation. The other thing that you'll find on this site, uh, there's a number of different fact sheets related to weed control. One that uh, we put together in 2019 was on glyphosate. Uh, this was motivated by glyphosate questions that not only I was getting, but uh, all of the weed scientists at UT were getting, the, our extension professionals were getting questions, and we kind of felt as part of our duty to put together something to help people answer questions about glyphosate, because those questions are not going to go away in 2020. So this is really short. It's a two-page document. Uh, that's all it is. Uh, real simple questions. What is glyphosate? Does glyphosate increase cancer risk in humans? Does UT Extension recommend glyphosate? How can one use glyphosate safely? Where can I get more information on glyphosate? I encourage you, if you have members that have questions about glyphosate, um, you have parents, you're, you're managing fields, and you have uh, parents and coaches that have questions about glyphosate. You have friends and family that have questions about glyphosate. Download this publication. It's there for your use, and hopefully it uh, can help you through some of those conversations as a uh, science-based resource. Aaron mentioned mobile weed manual. Again, that's our mobile application for herbicide selection in turf and ornamentals. Uh, just announced it's been updated for 2020, so every new product or label change for the 2020 season is in the app as of now. If you have questions about diagnostics and want resistance testing or off-type off -type testing, uh, that's your website there. This is my Twitter handle and contact. I need to thank the folks on the screen here. Uh, Greg Breeden, who many of you know, is my research technician for all of our field activities. Javier Vargas is research technician for lab and greenhouse. And then these two ladies, Devin Carroll, she's a new PhD student, and Dallas Taylor, she's a master's student. They do all the hard work to generate the numbers that make these slides, so thank you to them for all of their efforts. And in the three minutes left, I know Chris Sykes has a question. Anybody else have any questions first? <laughs> My only question was about the demise or the end of the Patriots dynasty. <laughs> wow. Wow. All I'll say is... Yeah, that's it. Yeah. What was the question? How has it affected you? <laughs> All I'll say is this, when you have three shots to put it in the end zone from the one, you deserve to lose. Well said, well said. Well, let's give uh, Dr. Brazen a hand. Everybody knows to get a hold of him.